Now, um, last time we were together, we did the tribulation period, and <clears throat> I, uh, I, uh, I showed you before we got into the tribulation that, you know, there's a, uh, we're dealing with dispensations, and uh, obviously the tribulation is a dispensation, and then what we're going to look at next is the millennial reign of Christ, which is a dispensation, but uh, there's a bridge uh, for that, for both of those. Uh, we already looked at the rapture of the church as the bridge between the dispensation of the church and the dispensation of the uh, tribulation period, how that is a bridge that, you know, kind of brings the two together and, and transitions us into the other one. The second one would be the second coming of Christ. So I want to talk about that for a little bit this morning before we move into uh, the millennium. And a lot of this you've heard before, but just so we keep a continuity and, you know, down the line someplace long after we go through it, somebody online will be going through it, so they need to have all the information, even though we maybe already have it. Uh, but I've said it many, many times that the, the theme of the Bible is the second coming of Christ. And it's, it's a specific day uh, in the Bible. It's called uh, the day of the Lord. Uh, it's called that day. And sometimes it's just called the day. And wherever you find that in the Bible, that one of those three, you just want to watch the context. Obviously, um, the day of the Lord, 100%. That day, um, 100%. Sometimes the day, um, not always, but I'd say 95, 96% of the time, look at the context, it'll be second coming of Christ. You know, it's a very key uh, aspect in the Bible. Every book in the Bible in the Old Testament points to this day. And, uh, you know, I, I, well over a thousand times in the Old Testament are you going to find references to this. Uh, sometimes you get into the minor prophets, that's all it is. Uh, when you get into the book of Psalms, I've told you before that Psalms is basically three things. Psalms is the uh, Jew in the tribulation asking for deliverance. It's a picture of the millennial reign of Christ, which we call the millennial Psalms. And it's also uh, a reference to the second coming in many, many places. You know, the book of Psalms, you know, is not a hard book, as most of the books of the Bible are not. If you just follow the basic structure that, that helps them really, uh, you know, lay themselves out. And so you're going to find that um, many times that uh, the day of the Lord gets confused with the rapture of the church. And, you know... Uh, we, uh, uh, I talked to a kid yesterday, his name is Chet Hansley, and he was, it was on Thursday night, it was a confused because they thought it was your husband, and he called me yesterday, <laughs> and he said, they got me messed up with somebody else, and I said, well, we have a James Hanley in our church, and I said, they thought that was you, and he says, oh, no, and he's down in um, Alabama, I think he said, Tennessee, I think he said he was, south of some ways, and uh, he's the one that asked that question about Thessalonians, where you had the day of Jesus Christ or the day of Christ, you know, and then it right around it turns and says that day. And, you know, it's things like that will, that will help you um, figure out where you're at. You certainly don't want to ignore them. Um, and you want to always give the credibility to when you see a text like that, 
you know, the Bible's consistent, so you want to follow its consistency. You never break the rules of the Bible, uh, no matter how it looks like this isn't what it is. You know, you always look for that and never break the rules, and you'll be pretty well safe on it. So, you know, the day of Jesus Christ or the day of Christ will be the rapture. As I said Thursday night, never anywhere in the Bible do I find that day or the day, uh, certainly wouldn't be the day of the Lord, uh, ever a reference to the rapture. It's always uh, the second coming. So it's things like that that you want to remember. Now, for me... Uh, and everybody, I mean, there's so many, but for me, the definitive chapter on the second coming is Revelation chapter 19. So let's turn over there, and uh, we'll look at that. Now, I'll be honest, you could probably take your pick of places uh, that you wanted to be the definitive verse of the second coming. I chose chapter 19, and uh, when I go to chapter 19, I have uh, every major reference to everything in the Old Testament that I need. And the reason why I chose Revelation chapter 19 is because, one, it's in the book of Revelation, Two, um, you'll find, look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Uh, and it says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Now, the reason why I chose this passage for my definitive passage to put all of my stuff in, and I've got, I could go anywhere with it from here. Uh, there's, there's different aspects that you'll see about this, and, you know, I, I could go anywhere with it. From here, the reason why I chose this passage when there's other really good passages that if you wanted to do that <coughs> is because the book of Revelation is built around heaven opening two times, and for me, it's just a better consistency in Revelation chapter four, <coughs> heaven is open, and somebody goes up, and in Revelation chapter nineteen, heaven open, and somebody comes down so to me, that's, I, I just want to, you know, I want to follow that. It's easy for me to remember that. Uh, chapter 4, Revelation, obviously, is the rapture of the church. You have the first three chapters with the church age. And then 4, 1, a voice in heaven saying, come up hither. Heaven opens and bang, somebody goes out. Here, you have heaven open and somebody comes down. So what you have is the first three chapters of Revelation is the church age, is the rapture, 5 through um, 18 is the tribulation period, and then 19, uh, you begin to close the book out and go through the uh, second coming of Christ. So for me, it gives me a complete picture of what I'm dealing with, and as I said, I have everything here that I need to uh, be able to uh, go wherever I need to go uh, in the Bible to, to put it together. And uh, some of the places that you want to, uh, uh, some, some of the t- places you want to look at, uh, come back to Isaiah chapter 63. I'm just going to give you uh, a, a couple of them here. Isaiah 
Now, this would probably be my, uh, if once I go to Revelation 19, uh, this is where I, I would go with my uh, second most important reference. And here I have another probably 30 or 40 references that I could go to. Uh, but it says in uh, 63.1, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, that I speak in righteousness mighty to save? Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and all the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in my anger and trample them with my fury, and the blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, uh, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance in mine heart and the year of my redeemed is come. Now, those are two secondary phrases you want to remember. Uh, the day of vengeance and then the, uh, the year of my redeemed. Both of those will be a reference to the second coming. And uh, so you want to remember that. And you'll find other little ones in there too. Now another one, uh, come over to Joel chapter 2. When you get into the minor prophets, as I said, all of the minor prophets fundamentally deal with, uh, deal with the second coming, tribulation second coming, and, and goes into the millennium too. And uh, pick it up in Joel chapter 2, pick it up in verse uh, um, 23. And here again, you know, uh, it, I've got a bunch more references here that uh, you can go through. Uh, but it says, 23, uh, Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down uh, for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. Now, there it is again, you see. There's that former and latter rain we talked about. Um, talked about that just the other Sunday. We talked about it a lot. That's James 5, where in the last three and a half years, Elijah shuts up heaven at the middle of the tribulation. It doesn't rain for three and a half years. Then he opens it up, and it rains, and that rain at the end ushers in the second coming of Christ and the millennium. So those are things that you, again, you just want to mark in your Bible. Um, and the floor shall be full of wheat and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. Uh, verse 25, I will restore to you the years the locust hath eaten the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. He's basically talking about what, again, we've been talking about in that generation, the restoration of Israel. He's going to restore to them what the tribulation took from them. Verse 25. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel uh, and that I am the Lord your God and none else uh, and my people shall never be ashamed. Now, when you find the phrase there in the midst of Israel, um, that that's not just a general term that is going to be in Israel. 
that speaks to, and you'll see this when we get into the millennium, that speaks to him being in the central aspect of the land uh, in Jerusalem. And you, you'll see how that he's central to that. So when he says in the midst, that's another term for in the middle. And that's basically where he's at. Um, and my people shall never be ashamed. And now we've got a paragraph mark in 28. Uh, and it, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh uh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Uh, and, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. Now, another key phrase there, and we've talked about this before, is the phrase, those days. You always want to mark that in your Bible. And, you know, as we talk about them, or as you find them in your own personal study, just want to take a yellow shine uh, a marker and just mark it in yellow so it stands out. So it'll give you the context, because normally that's always going to deal with the tribulation period. Now, all this is dealing with the second coming here. Uh, and he's going back and forth from what he's going to do in the millennium, but then he's showing you also where he's at with the second coming. And he says, verse 30, And I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. All this takes place in the tribulation period, last three and a half years leading up to the second coming. This would be in the middle of the former and latter reign that he talked about. Uh, verse 31, uh, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of, of the Lord come. Now, this uh, here again, and if you ever want to just find out and define any pastor or any Christian really, uh, you know, just listen how goofy they are sometimes and some of the stuff that they get. You know, it's been several years now, but, uh, you know, somebody, uh, I'll tell you who in a moment, somebody um, got into Joel chapter 2, verse 30 and 31, knew nothing about the Bible, knew nothing about the context of the Bible, and and saw this reference to the moon uh, being turned into blood. So now they come up with the idea uh, that you've heard about, about the blood moon. And, uh, you know, there's Baptist guys that, uh, that really don't know their Bible, and they're always looking for some kind of excitement to give their people because they don't have anything else to give them. So when something new comes out, um, they'll jump onto the bandwagon. And, you know, I've had several young guys... I've heard from their people, you know, that, you know, the blood moon, the blood moon, the blood moon, and, and all this stuff. And uh, I, I guess they can't, uh, I guess they can't read. Uh, if you look at verse 31, it says that this is all going to take place before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's second coming. So there is no blood moon today. Uh, somebody said, well, the moon looks really red so uh, it's a blood moon. No, the moon looks really red because it only looks red when you're looking at it through the lower atmosphere and it looks red because you're looking at it through 250 miles of dirt. Uh, when it same moon gets up high, that's why the moon looks so big when it first comes up. Somebody says, wow, you know, we're, 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 we're really, moon must be, we must be really closer to the moon now. No, what you're seeing is what they call light diffraction. 
it makes it look a lot bigger than it really is. That same moon, uh, if you would come back out, but you know, by that you're, you're probably too high to see anything. If if you came out and that moon was on top and the, up there where you're only looking through about four or five miles of dirt, it would be back to its normal size, and uh, it wouldn't be red anymore. It'd be the color that it is, the white light or whatever we want to call it. And uh, but but you know again, and you you might know that uh, the idea of the blood moon, you know and. When you don't know your Bible very well, then you need to really know your source of where you're getting your material. And of course, the blood moon comes from a guy by the name of Mark Blitz, who's the El Shaddai minister guy, who's a charismatic. And, uh, you know, John Hagee, the TV charismatic guy. Uh, And, uh, you know, and it just completely has nothing to do with the Bible. and it has to do with all this takes place in the tribulation period. And, you know, and these guys, you can't even go and say, well, the moon looking red is a sign of what's coming. No, 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 no. Because the only sign you have of what's coming took place in 1948. Those of us who know the Bible know that. So uh, this is all goofy stuff. And, uh, and this is what people get into and you know uh, young pastors who know nothing about the Bible who are trying to you know come up with something exciting uh, other than the Bible because they don't know the Bible they, they, they fall back on this kind of stuff and uh, it has nothing to do with seeing the moon if you come out tonight and it's clear and the moon's coming up and it looks red just because it's dirty it'll clear up when it gets high you know it's just that simple and then verse 32 gives you really the context. Uh, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call uh, on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Notice, they're not saved. You need to mark that in your Bible. It didn't, for us in Acts, it says, whosoever shall call on the Lord shall be saved, Acts chapter 10. Uh, not here, because they're not saved. They're delivered. Big difference. This is the importance of paying attention to every word. Now, in my Bible, obviously, I have 27 through uh, 32 all in yellow because it all stands out. But the key words I have circled around with a, a little rapidograph pen that you get in there that's, that's, uh, that's it, it's in red. If you don't have one, just steal one out of there because nobody's in there this morning. You can just grab one and run with it. Nobody, I won't, I'll look the other way here while you all want to get one. But, you know, and I mark that in red, uh, circle it, uh, because, you know, I, I want that, not that I wouldn't have seen it, but I want, it, I want my attention drawn to it. You know, when I'm reading the verses, I'm already looking at that and knowing what I got, so I don't have to wait till I get there to see it. It just, it just helps me. And so they're delivered. You know, uh, and notice they're delivered for in Mount Zion. That's, that's, that's the... Uh, nation of Israel, Jerusalem. Uh, for in Mount Zion and Jerusalem shall be deliverance. It has nothing to do with salvation in the sense that you and I are saved. As the Lord has said, uh, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Again, you should have the word remnant marked. Anytime you find the word remnant, going to be a reference to the nation of Israel. It's just that simple. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that 
you know, all of the minor prophets are all dealing with the tribulation, second coming, and some of them will obviously deal with the millennium. You saw it going back and forth here. You saw, first of all, verse 23, that he told him to be glad and rejoice. Verse 25, he, re- he says, and I will restore. He hasn't done it yet. He's talking that he is going to. Then he drops back into the tribulation period, and, uh, you know, and it goes from there. Now, when you get into chapter 3, same book, uh, again, you have, the same, you have the same situation here. And uh, in Joel chapter 3, uh, look down here. Um, oh, let's pick it up in verse... Uh, no, let's pick it up in 1. For behold, in those days, that's your first clue, uh, and in that time, that's your second clue, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. <clears throat> now this is going to be uh, the tribulation period. The Jew goes into captivity uh, two basic times in the Bible. Uh, once in 606 B.C. and then again in the tribulation period of the Antichrist. So he's saying bring again the captivity uh, he's talking about the uh, the second one under the Antichrist. Just got to know that. Uh, and I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Now that brings us up to really where we're at right now to this generation, because that's exactly what happened. The nations have scattered his people uh, and parted my land. And this will be a reference to basically the the judgment of the nations. This is what the Gentile nations have done from 606 B.C. up to and including the tribulation period. And they have cast lots for my people and have given uh, a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine, that they might drink. Um, yea, and, and what have ye to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon, uh, and all the coast of Palestine? You will render me recompense if ye be recompensed me swiftly and speedily. I will, uh, will I return on your recompense on your own head? The return there is obviously the second coming. Um, Look at verse 11. Assemble yourselves to get, uh, yourselves, and come, all ye uh, heathen, and gather yourselves round about. Thither cause the mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Uh, let the heathen be weakened and come up from the valley of Jehoshaphat. Uh, uh, for there will I sit to judge all heathen round about. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe, come get you down, for the press is full, and the fats overflow, uh, for their wickedness is great. Now, I'm going to begin to show you something about the second coming that you begin to find in verse 13. Notice it says a sickle. It says the harvest is ripe. It says the press is full. 
Now, with that, I want you to come over to Revelation chapter 14, and I want to show you how this thing works. Now, I've told you before that when you get into the book of Revelation, past chapter 4 and 5, now what you have is seven accounts of the tribulation period, the same time period, but a different emphasis on something every time. Along with that, you will have four accounts of the second coming of Christ with also a different reference uh, on, uh, uh, on, on uh, dealing with something different at the second coming. And here in chapter 14, you have the, uh, you have the, uh, you have, you find the sickle again, and now you find the wine press again. Now I'm going to start up here in uh, verse 14. I'm going to break this down for you so you want to get this uh, pretty clear. All right, first thing I want you to do is verse 16 and 17. In your Bible, I want you to draw a line between uh, verse 16 and 17 that goes all the way out to the end of the page, just a single line, dividing 16 and 17, but going out to the end of the page, and I'll tell you why here in a moment. Let's pick it up in verse 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud. Now, again, whenever you find a white cloud, uh, or even a cloud, you're going you're gonna to have the context going to be the second coming of Christ. And, uh, uh, and it's a thing where uh, that could be why that it's hard to find toilet paper on the shelves, white cloud, because it's being collected because God's going to use that when he comes back at the second coming. Just throwing that out to you. You do with that whatever you want. Anyway, anytime you find a cloud or a white cloud, and, and now, hang on just a second. Come back to Ezekiel 1. I want to show you the key words that wherever you find them will be the second coming. That's probably something that I need to give you here because before I even start giving them to you one at a time. And come over to Ezekiel chapter 1. Now, Ezekiel chapter 1 is another account of the second coming of Christ, as is Ezekiel chapter 10. And uh, what you have here is four creatures who are likened, or who are what the Bible calls cherubims. And what they're doing is they're bringing in God's throne at the second coming of Christ. It's a very confusing passage to most people. In fact, you know, all of the unsaved people that want to prove UFOs always go to Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10 saying that, uh, you know, this is your UFOs. And of course, uh, that's true. It is an unidentified flying object, but once you get in the Bible, it becomes identified. It's the second coming of Christ. But look at verse 4 of chapter 1. This is what the Bible does. It puts all, or all, 95% of the major key words 
in one verse that wherever you find them, the context will always be the second chronicle. Look at verse 4. I looked, and I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire unfolding in itself. A brightness was about it, and out of the mist thereof as the color of amber out of the mist of the fire. So the words that are always want to watch, and in time you need to mark them all through your Bible, is the word cloud, is the word brightness, is the word fire, is the word whirlwind, is the word north, and is the word throne. Uh, you'll find that in 10.1. Wherever you find those words, the context will always be a reference to the second coming. So, you know, when I get into 14 and I, I see it says a white cloud, you want to remember that in the book of Acts, when Jesus went up, he went up in a cloud and they asked him, uh, the angel said, the same Jesus seen going up in a cloud will come back in a cloud. So when you get into the Bible in places like Job or Isaiah or wherever, and it talks about a cloudy day, you're talking about the second coming of Christ. So it says, verse 14, and I looked and behold a white cloud, and upon the cloud, here it comes, one set like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, in his hand a sharp sickle. Now, that sickle there is like you would do to, to cut something to reap it, like a big uh, sickle that you always see the picture of death with a big old sickle in his hand. That's what it's looking look like, curved blade. Uh, the communist insignia is that uh, hammer in a sickle. You know, that's, that's the sickle. And uh, it can have a long handle on it, it can have a short handle on it. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle uh, on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, the reason why I told you to put a line between verse 16 and 17, in chapter 14, up to verse 16, with this sickle being uh, into the earth and the earth being reaped, this will be the tribulation saints being raptured out before the judgment of the second coming, which is going to follow in verse 17. So that's why I told you to divide those two out. Everything from 16 upward is the tribulation rapture. Everything 17 downward is the second coming. So now we know that the rapture for the tribulation saints takes place right before uh, the second coming. So verse 17, here we go. Now we're going to look at some more key phrases here. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, having a sharp sickle. He's got one too. Uh, and another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Now this is going to be the people. And I'm going to lay this out for you here in just a second. And the great and the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great wine press, there it is, of the wrath of God. We've seen this 
wine press press now. Now it's clearly defined for us that people are thrown into this wine press and look what happens. And the wine press was trodden, notice, without the city, not in Jerusalem, outside the city. I'm going to show you where in a moment. Uh, and blood came out of the wine press, even under the horse's bridle, by the space of a thousand six hundred furlongs. Now, come over to chapter 16 and look at verse 15. This goes along with it. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that uh, watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and there shall see his shame. And he gathered them together in a place in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. Now, we're going to talk about this tomorrow uh, when we get into the next four things in Proverbs chapter 30 because we're all moving into the tribulation. So you'll have a, you'll have a leg up on everybody tomorrow uh, based on, you know, what we're talking about today. Now we've got a location, and it's called Armageddon. Now the Valley of Armageddon uh, is also called the Valley of uh, Megiddo, sometimes called the Valley of Jezreel. Armageddon means uh, valley of the crowded people or valley of the crowd. Uh, Megiddo means crowded valley, the same kind of thing. There are, you know, different sayings for it, but it all comes down to the same thing, a place where a crowd is that gets clobbered. The valley of Armageddon is south of Jerusalem, uh, and it's a... It's a valley that is uh, 160 miles around. It's a huge valley surrounded on mountains uh, with only one way in. And this is where finally, right before the end, the Jews run into and get trapped. And the Antichrist army of well over 200 million men made up from all the nations which you've already seen surrounds them and traps them down in the valley of Armageddon. At that particular moment, this is where the Bible says in Matthew, lift up your head, your redemption draweth nigh. This is Revelation 14, uh, 14, 15, 16. The Lord comes back, thrust in his sickle, and reaps the tribulation saints out of this valley. Now all that is left in this valley is the Antichrist and his 200 million men. So then the second angel, verse 17 on, he comes down and these people, this valley is likened to a a wine press or a wine vat. And the way they make wine is they put you know, eight, 9,000 grapes uh, in a big vat, big barrel that's about that high. And then you have people get in it and with their feet, they crush the and mash the grapes. And from that, the juice comes out. They take it out, extract it, and that's where they get the grape juice. And they get through. They don't, that's not how they make it today, but that's what they did back then. It's called a wine fat or a wine press. 
And it's a thing where uh, this is the picture here. The Valley of Armageddon, 160 miles around, is likened to a big vat, and the people are likened to grapes. And when the Lord comes back at the second coming, he stomps those people. He treads them. Come back to Isaiah 63 now. Now it'll start making sense to you. Uh, pick it up in uh, uh, one again. Who is this that, co- uh, that cometh from Edom uh, with dyed garments from Bozrah? This that is glorious in his apparel, the Lord, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Now here it comes, verse 2. Now it'll make sense to you. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel? and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat. I have trodden the wine press alone. This is the Valley of Armageddon with the 200 million men down there in it. And of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them, the people, in the Valley of Armageddon, the wine press, in mine fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. So now you're beginning to see this picture come together. And now we're beginning to take it chapter by chapter. And now in 14, we actually see what is called the great winepress of God, where he's trampling them, and the blood is staining his raiment. Now, This is in the Valley of Armageddon, the Valley of Jezreel. By the way, there have been more battles fought in this valley than any other place on earth. In the last 3,000 years, 34 major battles uh, fought in this place in history. Now, come over to Revelation 19. Now you begin to see, when you're reading in chapter 19, pieces begin to come together. It says... Verse 11, and I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that uh, sat upon was called faithful and true and in righteousness doth he judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire on his head were many crowns and in a name written that no man knew but himself. Now here it comes. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. There it is. Now that all makes sense to you. Because now you understand the vesture dipped in blood, staining of his raiments, and the great rind press of Almighty God as it, uh, you know, comes down. Now, um, if you go back to Revelation chapter 14, verse 20, it says, And the wine press was trodden without the city, now we know outside of Jerusalem, and the blood came out of the wine press, even to under the horse's bridles, that would be approximately three and a half feet high, uh, by the space of 1,600 furlongs. That's 160 miles. So the blood from these dead people filled this valley for 
uh, three and a half feet high for 160 miles around. It's it truly a uh, the people's blood being like grape juice as they're trampled. Now, this is why in Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 12, it tells you that after this all takes place and the Lord does come back, that it takes seven months to bury all of the dead uh, because of, of the great, of what happens and all that takes place. So the second coming of Christ is what ushers in the, uh, the millennial reign of Christ. And it's, a, it's the key of being able to understand how everything fits uh, in the Bible together. And, uh, it, it, you know, it is, you can see now why it's the key. Most guys teach today that the theme of the Bible is salvation. And I understand that uh, because to us, salvation is, you know, without a doubt, salvation is the, uh, is the key that, um, that, that pulls it all together for us. But this is what I always say that, you know, uh, when you look at the Bible you never, and study the Bible, you never study it from a New Testament Christian standpoint. Otherwise, you're going to read New Testament Christianity into everything. And that's exactly what they do. That's why in the Old Testament they say that the Old Testament people look forward to the cross. We look back to the cross. It's exactly what they do. And that's why they think that salvation is the theme of the Bible. And, of course, that's not true. Uh, the day that is God's prophetic day, that is his day, uh, on God's calendar is called the day of the Lord, not the day of the crucifixion. I mean, I know the crucifixion and Christ dying on the cross is my greatest day, and it should be yours too. But as far as God is concerned, and this is the difference between looking at it from a Christian standpoint or backing off and looking at the Bible from God's standpoint, the greatest day in the history of the world will be the day that his son sits down on the throne in Jerusalem and is crowned king of kings and lord of lords. That's the day. And it told you <laughs> over and over again, the day of the Lord. And I'm not sure how people miss that other than the fact that, you know, they just reject the Bible and, and anyhow, and that's the way it goes. So you're going to see that, that it is the key. And everything in the Bible goes toward that day. I, I've told you before that, They've changed it all now, but before, uh, all time was in the world uh, was figured two ways. It was figured, first of all, and still is, from Greenwich, England. And if you, I don't care if you live in Russia, South Africa, or wherever, if you want to get the correct time, you got to get English time from England in Greenwich. That has been set up as the standard of time has to come from England. And it's no accident that the standard of the Bible and God's time also came from England. So if you want to get the right time in to set your clock, you go to England. If you want to get the right Bible that's going to give you God's timing, you get the one that came out of England. It, it's just that simple. And I know before I even go any farther, scholarship would scoff at that and laugh at that. But that's because you're an idiot. So we don't take you too seriously anyhow. But it's a thing that that's the way that it works. So you begin to see how this whole thing uh, plays around. And for time, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, 
in modern times, up to the last 20, 30 years or so, all time was counted to and from Christ's death on the cross, the crucifixion. And before his crucifixion, it was time was given in the increment of B.C., which means simply before Christ. So everything in the Old Testament was before Christ. He was the central timepiece for time. They've changed it now because they've did away from God and the Bible and everything. After that, it was A.D., which many people who were uninformed over the years thought that that means after death. And, of course, uh, that's not true. It's a Latin term, which means in the year of our Lord, meaning that after Christ came, they started counting the years by his second coming in the year of our Lord. In other words, no man knoweth the day and the time. They, they called it uh, in the year of our Lord because that could be the year that he came because nobody knew. And obviously, uh, you know, that's all been changed. But uh, the second coming of Christ was always the premier aspect of everything in history, even when men didn't know it. I think I told you a couple of months ago or whatever that in the newspaper world that the headlines they have uh, about how big they are um, are attributed to um, the major events and the highest biggest, boldest, largest print that a newspaper will put on to describe some event is simply called in the news world second coming type. In other words, even they, and they may have changed it now, but it was that way for ever since newspapers were put together, um, they always realized that that should have got the biggest headline because that was the biggest headline. So it's called second coming headlines. And so a major event that impacted everybody would get second coming headlines because that was the highest standard of their big print that they could put on a paper. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And of course, uh, you know, a lot of people today uh, in the cult world uh, reject the liter literal reverent of Christ. The Catholics do. Mormons do. Jehovah Witnesses do. Uh, most of those very... Uh, uh, satanic cults, not that one more satanic than the other, but they're way out there. They will all do away with the second coming uh, and they'll all spiritualize it. The, they have to do that, especially the Roman Catholic Church, because if you read Revelation 17 and 18, the second coming of Christ wipes the Roman Catholic Church off the map. I'd change it too if I were you. Uh, and it's a thing where they all got to get around that because that's going to be the day of the Lord when God does his reckoning. Now, uh, is there any questions on that before we kind of move into the millennium here? If there is, I'll repeat the question so they can hear it on the deal there since we don't, we don't need a mic. Anybody? Okay, well, that's just, you know, I, I try to put that as easy for you as, as I can. Now, the, another reason I put Revelation 19 as my base text in my definitive passage, in every place that I have taken you today uh, and about 90 other places that I could have taken you are all listed right there in Revelation 19 at my fingertips. 
so I can go wherever I need to go. And you need to, this is the value and really the importance of, of um, understanding definitive chapters or definitive verses. And when you find one that defines something, then you dump all your material there. And instead of trying to have to remember every place you got to go, just remember that one and it's right there. And so, and the reason why I put Revelation 19 is because in the, in the, in the order of events, the millennium starts in Revelation chapter 20. And that will, be my, that will be my definitive chapter on the millennium. And again, just like the tribulation, I'll go wherever I need to go from there to, uh, to put that in play. So once we have seen the, the aspect of the end of the tribulation, the second coming then we move into uh, the millennium in chapter 20. And let's look at chapter 20, and uh, let's read it. And it says, and the whole chapter is, is what we'll base out of. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Now, now, let me just say this. When it comes to the millennium, when it comes to Baptists, certainly the neo-evangelical idiots, but when it comes to the Baptists or the theologians or the great scholars, um, they haven't got a clue. Um, I've read some of the guys that are, that are held up um, as great Bible teachers, and maybe they are if you're just singing Jesus loves me, this I know. But when it comes to the depth of the Bible, places like this, they, they, haven't, they haven't got a clue. And it's all a generalization of it all without ever really getting into anything. And it's a shame, but, you know, that shows you the, the inability of somebody to really understand the Bible. And the millennium is going to last for 1,000 years. In fact, the word millennium Mill is 1,000. And uh, it says in verse 2, uh, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan. Notice there how he gives you the defining words for whatever you're going to find through the scripture. The old serpent, the dragon, the devil, Satan. You got four or five key words there that you'll want to wherever you find them. Now, in other places, he adds some other stuff to it and you get some more Names, but you know this is what you what you do. But the thing I want you to show you that he binds him for a thousand years, and that'll be the time period of the millennium, and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should see the nations no more till one more time the thousand uh, uh, years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed for a little season. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. And I saw the thrones, and they that sat upon them, and the judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus Christ. This will be the Jews in the tribulation. Uh, and for the word of God, and they had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, uh, and then lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There's your third reference to it. Um, the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were, uh, were finished. This is the first resurrection. There's your, there's your fourth reference to it. 
Um, Blessed and holy is he that hath part of the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. There it is, your fifth time. And when the thousand years are expired, there's your seventh, or sixth one, uh, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the nation, uh, which uh, are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is the sand of the sea. Uh, and they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down out of heaven and devoured them. Now, uh, I want to give you some things about the millennium that you need to understand that will tie other things in the Bible with, with it. And then I want you to, uh, then I will go back and I want to show you how the whole thing kind of <clears throat> goes together. Now, at the second coming of Christ, Christ comes in and he establishes his throne in Jerusalem. Sitting with him on that throne is David. Along with him on uh, that throne are the 12 apostles. And they're sitting, as the Bible tells us, on 12 thrones that through the millennium they judge the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes. And I'll show you here in a little bit how that in the millennium the 12 tribes get divided up to the land grant that was given to Abraham. And uh, so each tribe has its own inheritance. And one of the apostles that is over that will, will do whatever he does with them during that time period. And I want you to notice that we see here now in chapter 20 is the fact that Satan is bound for a thousand years but he is let loose at the end of the tribulation period. And the reason for that, and this is completely unknown, is the great aspect of free will in the Bible. Anybody who doesn't accept the aspect of free will is just an idiot when it comes to the Scripture. It's taught all the way through the Bible. And here in the millennium, if you know uh, how the millennium is going to function, it's going to function just like our world functions today. There'll be people born. There will be people that die. There will be people that, you see, he doesn't wipe away death and all the tears till after the, after the great white throne judgment. And we'll get into this in a, in a little bit. If this, not this week, certainly the next time we have to finish it up. But you're going to find that in the millennium, it's a government. It's just like it is now in our world, except for a couple of differences. One, there'll be no governments like America or England or Russia or Iraq or Iran. The whole world will be under one government from Jerusalem. And Christ will be at the head of that government. And the nation of Israel will be over that government and that's, you know, that's how it's going to work. Uh, the, it'll be a righteous reign, as he said, that there'll be nobody doing anything wrong. There'll be no uh, fights, no wars. 
Uh, there'll be no, uh, nothing will happen. Uh, there'll be no sickness, no disease. Everything is going to be controlled. Uh, everything is going to go back to Jerusalem. And this is what you're going to, this is how it's going to operate. Now, when we go into this millennium, you want to remember <clears throat> that there are basically seven people groups that go into this millennium. And uh, in the Bible, they're called the family of God. And again, this is completely unknown to, uh, I don't even know where to say. I mean, it just, and, but you want to remember that in a family of God, in a family of God is talked about in Ephesians 2.19 and again in Ephesians 3.15. Within that family, you have seven members of that family. Let me tell you who they are. First of all, you have Christ. And he's likened as the bridegroom in the Bible. Then you have the bride. And that will be the second component that goes into the millennium, which will be the church, you and me. We're in glorified bodies with him. The third people group that go in will be associated with the uh, you know, the people that go from Moses under the law up to John the Baptist. And of course, they will, uh, in the Bible, they're called the friends of the bridegroom. The fourth group will be tribulation Jews. And you'll find that they are called virgins in Matthew chapter 25. Then during the tribulation, you have Gentiles who are evangelized by the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and they go into the tribulation, and the Bible makes a reference and calls them the guests in Matthew chapter 22. Then you have people that would come from Adam to Moses before the law. They go in, and the Bible gives them the title of concubines. And then you have the people that will go of the Gentile nations that will go into the millennium who never took the mark of the beast. And you got to remember there'll be places where in seven short years the Antichrist won't really get to. So these people go in, and these are Gentiles, and uh, uh, they are called the queens. Now, come back to Zechariah, and let me show you this in play. Zechariah chapter 14. And Zechariah is the second coming of Christ all the way through. But when you get into chapter 14, um, then you have the kind of the consolidation of the book. And certainly, uh, well, I'll just, I'm going to read the whole chapter and I'll walk you through it. So just, you know, you get your yellow pen out for this one. Now look how it starts out. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. And thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. Second coming of Christ. 
for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue shall not be cut off from the city. All right, there is the, there is the uh, uh, tribulation period. There's all the nations. And notice it says, all nations, America included. They're going against the Jew in the tribulation period. Verse 3 comes the second coming. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. The day of battle, if you don't have this reference in here, will be Joshua chapter 10, verse 14. And that is the day of battle he's referencing to. And if you go back to that passage, you'll find that that story, that battle is a picture of the second coming of Christ. Now look at verse 4, paragraph mark. Second coming. And his feet shall stand in that day, second coming, upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem, on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the mist thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Now this is the Christ coming back, and when he gets off the white horse, it's on the Mount of Olives, and the mountain, it, it, the valley separates, and, uh, and ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel, Yea, and shall flee like you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. That's not recorded in the Bible back in, in uh, Isaiah's time or any place in there. It's just, make, he does this several times in the Bible. He'll make a reference to something that actually happened, but it's not found anywhere in the Bible. That's just one of them. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall be not clear nor dark, cloudy. See that thing? Okay. But it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, uh, not day or night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. And it shall come and it shall be in that day that living water shall go out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea in the summer and the winter shall it be. Now we're moving into the millennium. So we saw everything up in this point is the second coming. He comes back to the Mount of Olives. Now uh, look at verse 9. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day. Shall there be one Lord and his name one. Now we're moving into the millennium here. All the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Rimmeth south of Jerusalem. And it shall be lifted up uh, inhabitants in her place from Benjamin's gate into the place of the first gate into the corner gate and from the tower of Haniel under the king's winepress. And men shall dwell in it, and there shall no more uh, be more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Now, see what we've got here? We went from the tribulation into the millennium. Jerusalem is back in the land, and now it's safely being inhabited. Now, watch, watch it. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord shall smite the people that have fought against Jerusalem, going back now to the tribulation. Uh, their flesh shall consume away, and they shall stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away, and their holes shall, uh, their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. Utter destruction. 
I'd love to take the time to tell you how that, when you set off an atomic bomb, it does the same thing. It melts the skin, melts the eyes, just like it did at Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and all those places. And I would love to take you over to Hebrews and show you that uh, God is a gigantic atomic bomb, and the light that comes from him is going to melt them because he is the... He, but we don't have time to get into that today. Their flesh shall consume away, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, uh, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. Not going to be a good day. If you're going to get some sunblock, get it up around 10,000. You're going to need it. And it shall come to pass in that day, second coming, of that a great tumult. Tumult is a great destruction or a great distress, an old English word. From the Lord shall be among them, and they shall lay hold on every one his hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. And Judas shall also fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all heathen round about shall be gathered together, uh, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. And so shall the, be the plague of the horse, of the mule, of the camel, and the ass, and all the beasts that shall be in the tents at this plague. Now watch it very carefully. We've come up through the tribulation in the millennium, and then he reverts back talking about the destruction at the second coming. Now watch verse 16. Here it comes. Now we're going to move directly into the millennium, and you're going to see what is actually taking place in Revelation chapter 20. I've given you seven components, people groups, components of the family of God that go into the millennium. Now watch. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem even shall go up from year to year to worship the king of the Lord of hosts and keep the feast of tabernacles. These will be the Gentile nations that are called the guests. These are people that were part of the nations that did what they did against the Jews, but they were neutral. And you're going to find that that is going to happen. It all happens everywhere. It's what you have uh, in all places through history. Not everybody in, in Adolf Hitler's time period was with Adolf Hitler. Many of them helped the Jews. Uh, it would be that same kind of thing. Not everybody is going to go along with him. He's only got seven years. And remember, his primary focus is going to be Jerusalem. He's not going to have time to impact the whole world uh, as is commonly taught and thought. He's not. There's going to be places that he doesn't reach because that's not his goal. His goal is Jerusalem. And once he gets Jerusalem and establishes his reign, then he can go after the whole world. It's just that simple. All right, it says now, these are nations that were left. And every year, I want you to see, they come up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this is a complete unknown teaching uh, to everybody today, they just can't get and understand how in the world, after Jesus came and died on the cross, and we the law is done away with, and we're saved now by faith through grace, why in the world is anybody coming up the feast to keep the Feast of Tabernacles? They, they, they just, and so what they do with this is nothing. They pretend it isn't there. They generalize it. And yet he's telling you very clearly, putting it all together, that in the millennium, they go back under an Old Testament structure and 
nobody is getting saved in the millennium as in the tribulation by trusting Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. Here, they're following what the Lord says. He's on the throne, so faith doesn't enter into it. He's sitting on the throne. Here, they're told to come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And the reason why they're told to keep the Feast of Tabernacles is because the Feast of Tabernacles is the time of the second coming of Christ. It's somewhere between September 22nd, 23rd, 24th um, in, in the Bible time frame. Now, this is why. Now, let me show you a little more here. Come over to Colossians chapter 2. Let me show you something here. And again, this is so beyond the average pastor, the average Christian, that, you know what, it's all, it, you, they, they couldn't get it if their life depended on it. They're so far removed from the Bible. Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, we have the great chapter on how we get saved in the church age through spiritual circumcision. And I'm not going to go in time and go into all of that, but spiritual circumcision. Now watch what it says. Verse 8. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit at the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him, Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye, me and you, are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. In whom... Also, ye, me and you, are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Clearly, you understand that, that the day you got saved, the spiritual circumcision is God coming in and separating your flesh from your soul, sealing your soul with the Holy Spirit of God, which still reigns inside your body, and you still have the flesh that you have to deal with. But this is called the circumcision of, of, of Christ. Buried with him in baptism. That's not water baptism. That's the baptism of uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and Ephesians 4, 5. The spiritual baptism that puts you in the body of Christ by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation. The thing that got you saved is you had a guy who is the great physician performed an operation on you that separated your flesh from your soul, sealed your soul, and uh, now you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. That is so clear, yet that is absolutely unknown in Baptist circles. The evangelicals, they are so stupid when it comes to the Bible, they, they don't even have a clue how it works. And I'm being generous by saying stupid. You being dead in your sins and uncircumcised of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now look at verse 14. Here it comes. Here now is the Old Testament has none effect on you and me in the church age. Watch. Blotting out the handwritings of the ordinances that was against us, that's the Old Testament law, 
which was contrary to us, took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now, when he died on the cross, he took the law away. Now, watch. And having spoiled principalities and powers, that's the devil and his crowd, got the keys to death and hell, he made a show of them triumphantly over them in it. Now, here it comes. Let no man therefore, what he just told you, what we have read so far, let no man therefore judge you in meat, as in a meat offering in the Old Testament, or in drink, as a drink offering in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, or of a new moon, like the the book of Leviticus, or of the Sabbath days. Now, you tell me how a seventh-day Adventist gets around that. You tell me, uh, you know, how they get around it, because they don't know anything about the Bible. It says that he took the Old Testament law away from us and nailed it to his cross. So the Old Testament law does not now apply to us. Now watch this next verse. Which, the meat, the drink, the holy day, and the new moon, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. You know why he says it's a shadow of things to come? Because you just saw in Zechariah chapter 14 that they're coming back in in the millennium for the nation of Israel and the Gentiles. But the body, you and me, we're of Christ. They don't have any effect on us. Now that destroys, absolutely destroys, any idea that anybody in the millennium is going to get saved like we get saved as the tribulation. But this is what you're up against today with the absolute stupidity of Bible scholarship, higher education when it comes to the Bible, Bible colleges, Greek and the Hebrew, and anything else you want to put into the, into the mix other than the Bible. And this is what happens today, and this is what has destroyed and taken from the people and the Bible. So now the pastors who were taught by these guys, the Bible colleges who taught them, and people who, who follow it, follow them, have absolutely no clue when it comes to the Bible. And you know what? Everybody here, and you're listening to me, all I did was just walk you through the Scripture. You cannot deny one thing that I gave you today. It's just that clear. Now, let's go back to, to, uh, to Zechariah. Okay, we're going to pick it up in verse 16 again at the paragraph mark. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now we understand that. And also, I told you that the Feast of Tabernacles is what represents the second coming of Christ. And if you know your Bible, you know that up to uh, uh, Exodus chapter 12, the Feast of Tabernacles was what began the first Jewish year. And the Feast of Tabernacles is not only the second coming of Christ, the Feast of Tabernacles is the birthday of Jesus Christ, and the Feast of Tabernacles in God's mind was the creation of everything in Genesis chapter 1. So that's why they're keeping it up to Exodus chapter 12, 
in chapter 12, when the blood of the lamb was put on the door, then they began to take their beginning of the year from the Passover picture of Christ. And so now we're back, now we're back at the Feast of Tabernacles and looks like year by year, everybody on the, in the world is coming up and commemorating the coming of Christ as a memorial through the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whosoever will not come up, ah, now we got some people who will not come up. Of all the families of the earth, notice the word families. This you want to run back to God talking with Abraham all the way back there in the early part of Genesis 15 and 12 where he said what? All the what? Families of the earth will be blessed in you. See where we're going with this? All those words are key. These families of the earth will not come up to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. Upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up or come not out, have no rain, and if the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen, they come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And this shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and on the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowels before the altar. And every pot of Jerusalem and of Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts, and all that sacrifice shall come uh, unto them and see therein. And in that day there shall be no more room, the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of the hosts. And, uh, and it's a thing where you have now uh, a better understanding. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 20 now. Satan gets bound for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand years, he's let loose for a little season. And here's why. It goes back to the free will concept. Uh, All through the Bible, God has given everything that he created the choice to be with him in his government on into eternity, or not to be with him. So all the way back, he gave the cherubims a choice, and Lucifer opted out. He gave the angels a choice, and Satan convinced a third of them to opt out by their own free will. Then in the Old Testament, when he put Adam and Eve down there, he gave them their choice. They opted out. After that, he gave Noah and the people on the earth their choice. They opted out. All down through the Bible, the central thing that God has done is given every aspect of his creation the chance to, by their own free will, either to go with him in his plan or not go with him in his plan. So up through this point in time, at the end of the tribulation period, Everybody's had their choice. Everybody through the church age had their choice. Everybody in the Old Testament had their choice. Now we come to the second coming going into the millennium. There's now a people group who has not yet exercised their own choice. 
God will not force anybody to be with him, love him, or be part of whatever he's doing. He'll always give you the free will choice to be able to choose that. So when we get into the tribulation period, into the millennium, the first group will be all those nations that came in at the second coming of Christ that were not part of the Antichrist, but not have officially accepted what the Lord is going to do. The other people group will be the people that will be born into the millennium. When they are born into the millennium, they've never had to make a choice. The Gentile nations, they were completely out of, they have not made a choice. And the only way that they can be mad, have a choice made is for the devil to be loosed out of that for a little season. And he finds a host of people who during this thousand year reign could not publicly revolt, but underground there is a, there is a underlying uh, thing that we don't want to be part of this. And so God gives those people the choice by allowing the devil to come out, and through that, they make their choice. And now at this point in time, everything that God has created has had the free will choice to go be with him. And from this point on, in God's mind, everything now has been accounted for. And uh, I'm going to hold up there because I've given you so much information and we're only breaking the ice here on the, on the millennium. Next week or next month, I want to show you how that I had mentioned the fact that, and this is so unknown that you've got to explain it, uh, that in the millennium, people die. And in the millennium, uh, you know, people get, a, get the choice to make. We've already covered that. And I'm going to weigh all this out of how the structure of the millennium operates. And we will, we will begin to put it all together from there that when we're done with this, um, you know, you'll have a complete picture. Uh, the millennial reign of Christ is, is a key aspect. Uh, and we will look at it. Um, and, 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 and begin to put the structure together and give you the detail of it. And uh, I, will, I will go into the internal structure of what happens, showing you every piece of the puzzle. And, uh, you know, we'll go from there. Any questions? So we'll do that. Yeah. There's a question back in Zachariah. Who? Okay. Hey, well, let me get back there. Okay. In verses 12 through 16. 12 through 16? Yeah. Let me read it. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet uh, and their eyes and all that stuff. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them, and they shall lay hold everyone in his hand. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, that here in 14 that I just read, uh, this, is, this is the end of the tribulation, not the millennium. 
Yeah. Yeah, he's going back and forth here, but he's not dealing with the end of the millennium yet in any way, shape, or form. He's dealing with coming back from, he's basically talking about the day of the Lord, and he's kind of going back and forth and showing you the different aspects of how he's dealing with it. And then in verse 16, he finally focuses on going into the millennium and everything that's going to happen there. And there he shows you uh, what is going to happen when the devil comes out, and I'll show you this next week, when the devil finally gets out and he finds his crew that wants to go with him, there is no more plagues. I'll show you how where this fits in, that in a split second, it's gone. You know, everything in 14, 12, 13, 14 uh, is uh, second coming here toward the end. And he's, he's moving back and forth in this. And uh, here's where you got to follow um, the the words and see where he's going and also the paragraph marks will help you with it um, but that's where we're at with that so all right